0: Welcome to What the Food with Karen Van Barneveld. Much of the time, we mindlessly consume food without really thinking about what's in it and how it affects us. Not only is some food addictive, it also might be unsafe. On our program, you'll find the answers about why food is addictive, how it affects us, and how to find a safe route to better health. Now, here is your host, Karen Van Barneveld. Hey, this is
1: Karen Van Barneveld with WTF What the Food where we tell all the little dirty secrets of what's on your plate. Here with me today to shed some light on some of those secrets is founder of the Sanctuary at Sedona, Dean Tarabarelli. Welcome, Dean. Thank you for coming on the show.
2: Thank you, Karen, for having me. Such a blessing to be with you this afternoon.
1: Ah, that's very sweet. Thank you. Let me tell you guys a little bit about Dean. Not only is he the founder of the sanctuary, he's also an administrator and counselor at the sanctuary. He has a BA in political science and is currently senior teaching staff at Four Winds Society and International School of Energy Medicine. His credentials also include being an ordained minister, that was news to me, a certified shamanic breathwork facilitator, a founding member society for shamanic practitioners a member of Association for Comprehensive Energy Psychology, and a member of National Institute for Holistic Addiction Studies. Wow, that's a lot. Please, Dean, um, give our listeners a little snapshot of why you founded the sanctuary and a little bit of your history.
2: Yeah, you bet. Well, I founded the sanctuary basically because of my own journey. I had um, substance abuse issues as as a little child, and um, they got worse and worse. So, what do you do when things get bad enough? You go to treatment, and I did everything that I was told in treatment. I was a very compliant, patient, and you know, the first time I got out, I think I had four years or so, and then had a relapse, and uh, then the cycle just continued, and I began. I've been to treatment in the double digits of treatment centers to Mm -hmm. some of the best places that money can buy and that that are known in the country. And I worked hard in them and I couldn't seem to stay clean. And when that, um, you know, as I was doing all that, I got, I got just the, the guidance to start looking around the world. So if I heard of some, some doctor over in Europe or somewhere, I'd just go see them. So I kind of amassed this, great knowledge of sort of a more holistic approach to mental health, and when I was at my last treatment center, the worst treatment center I've ever been to, um, this whole thing came to me, my goodness, um, holy smokes, there needs to be a different model in the mental health world, because what we have now is not working, and you know, basically when people with anxiety or depression, you go to the doctor, and it kind of ends with a pill, so... That was then the impetus for the sanctuary. That was about 16 years ago. And here we are today on the phone.
1: (laughs) Well, um, I think the sanctuary is an amazing, amazing place. And I'm so happy that um, you're having such great success there. And today we're talking about holistic nutrition and addiction. Um, Dean, what makes a program holistic? Everybody's using that
2: term, but what does that mean? Well, I think... It, and it, it is good that everybody's using the term, at least it's in their awareness. <clears throat> so holistic, you know, and it's simple, From it means the whole thing. So that means, you know, we have, uh, we use the term body, mind, soul, spirit. Um, everybody has heard this thing, body, mind, spirit. Hey, body, mind, spirit, you've read every spa magazine, every, you know, people seem to be aware of that, that, that expression. We put the word soul in there, which we can talk about what that means if it's important. And really, that means that if, if these things are all together, then they're connected. So if something is, is wrong in one of those systems, it must affect the rest of the systems. Right. And therefore, if we work on all of these systems concurrently, my chances of getting well are significantly increased. So the, I think the thing about holistic, what makes, what makes things really holistic is not necessarily um, – adding a new a new layer to an antiquated treatment model because that's what a lot of places are doing and again no I think it's great that people are moving in in the direction of holistic health but you know what what it really has to do with is how do all the systems in the body work together because most of the people that are listening to us have access to doctors and therapists and this and that, and they probably, for the most part, listen to instructions and still can't make any progress. Because it's not only that we have to address all these things, but in what combination and how. Because the body works in a, in a very synchronistic, synergistic way, and so we have to look at how all the therapies affect each other and how they affect the whole objective. So it's great that people are using different things, but how they are administered and what sort of what's the dose of each thing and when um, it can really affect the efficacy of holistic treatment of anything.
1: Yes, that that makes one hundred percent sense. Well, many programs out there talk about getting to the root cause of addiction. What does that mean, and how does that play into um, what you do at the sanctuary?
2: Well, the root cause, you know, again, that's another big word, really, you know, when, when people have a crisis in their life, they're looking at kind of the last thing that happened to them. You know, I had this accident or this divorce or I lost this job or, you know, I just can't get out of bed anymore, um, whatever, whatever the case is. And while it's important to consider that, it's really not the last thing that happened to us. It's the first thing. It's the first time something happens because that's when we make all of the decisions about how we're going to react to that to stay safe and stay protected or stay comfortable. And these become instructions in the subconscious mind. So it, and most of the time when that's happening, people are in the state of fight or flight. So that means I'm, I'm only concerned about survival. I'm not thinking about sort of my higher path and what my possibilities are. I'm looking to just survive.
1: Right. And...
2: We, so we will uh, develop a coping strategy in survival and this thing gets laid back as a program in our psyche and then when something similar happens later, we react in the same way that we did the first time. The thing is that this is all invisible to people. And a, a way we might understand this, Karen, is you know we've all had situations where I will have a disproportionate response to something kind of simple. You know, uh, my spouse doesn't take out the trash and I blow my top. Mm-hmm. And it, it, is it really about the trash or no. is it about some core wound that is now being inflamed? And so when we talk about getting to the root cause, we're talking about getting to really what what is in the psyche that is keeping people um, from their highest good. So a way that we might understand this is, you know, most people in this day and age, particularly young people, are not taking drugs because they're in pain, right? They take drugs because it's fun and all of a sudden I can dance better or talk to members of the opposite <laughs> sex um, or I can tell my boss <laughs> to go jump off a bridge or
0: what, uh-huh. any of those
2: things. So we have to ask the question, well, what is it about mo- the way I feel about myself in the world that prevents me from just saying that unless I'm intoxicated and all my inhibitions are down? So what are my inhibitions, and these are all the, di- the my inner dialogue about what I can't do, what I can do, what I shouldn't do, what I should do, what I should that. And these are all pointing towards all of these uh, either trauma or conditioning that we got that may not be in alignment with our kind of highest expression of ourselves. And then people will tend to go out and try to feel better some way. So the root so, cause means yeah. then I don't have that anymore. I've addressed this issue, which is now invisible. And just like when people are blowing up at their spouse for something silly, uh, they don't realize what's going on. And so we've got to dig for those things and find them.
1: Yeah, because they're pretty well buried, aren't they?
2: They are. And they're so buried. When, and, uh, you know, when it's hard to understand, but everybody's seen somebody freaking out and having a moment. And everybody's like, wow, what's up with this person, right? They're doing something that's completely out of alignment, out of disproportionate to what's going on around them. Mm -hmm. And the only person that doesn't know is the person that's having the moment, right? They're they're triggered. And once I am triggered, um, you know, the limbic brain doesn't know time. So I don't know whether, you know, this thing that this program that's running, I think it's current, but it's not. It's some old program that's running. So it is. It's very challenging to find these things.
1: Yeah, how does, um, how does nutrition or food play into recovery and what's different from the food at the sanctuary and traditional recovery treatment centers?
2: Well, you've got a whole show for the next year or two to talk about this, right? <laughs> so, but I can, I can certainly just add my, my little piece of the puzzle because it's, it's a complex topic. But um, at its most rudimentary, you know, every cell in your body – Every fiber, every connective tissue, every blood vessel, every brain cell uh, is made of whatever you eat, right? Mm -hmm. Your food becomes uh, kind of like the building blocks Mm -hmm. of what your body is made of, right? That makes sense. And what many people don't know is that every single day of your life, billions of cells die off and they're replaced by billions of new cells. So my body is in this constant renewal cycle, so 80% of your body, Karen, that you're sitting there right now, you think it's you, but 80% of it wasn't there last year. Yeah. And so when we look at food, um, you know, we want to put in the best ingredients. It's just like, hey, if I'm building a house, I want to make sure that I buy the best building materials because my house is going to last a long time. And so that's the first thing that becomes important is to understand that um, you know people go out and they buy a a Lamborghini, right? And they put in the best gas and the best oil and the best additives and, you know, the best because they want this thing to run optimally. And then I stop at McDonald's and eat along the way, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, so I don't apply those same rules to my own uh, yeah. my own engine. And, and so that's the most rudimentary thing. But now as we begin to understand the relationship between food and mood, and so, um, on your show, I'm sure you'll address the gut microbiome to yes. you know to 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 no end, because it's very complicated. And actually, uh, this little system that starts at your lips and ends at your anus has uh, <laughs> 90 percent more cells in it than you do human cells in your body. So there's this is a living organism, your gut. And your gut is actually, um, these little organisms are what digest your food and their excrement, we call that metabolite to make it more professional sounding. Yeah, You know, their metabolites um, are what we digest. And so their metabolites are spitting out all kinds of neurotransmitters and things that my body desperately needs to function. So most people by this day and age, I shouldn't say most people anything, but many people are now aware that. Uh, the neurotransmitter serotonin, which is a little bit of a misnomer because serotonin does a million other things besides things in the brain, Uh, the lion's share of your serotonin is made in your gut. Mm -hmm. So um, back in the 80s when all the SSRIs were coming out, they said, hey, uh, you don't have enough serotonin on your brain, uh, even though it's impossible to measure how much is up there. And uh, nor do we know how much is supposed to be up there, but serotonin typically associated with feeling good. So people just said, hey, you don't have enough. So they create the drug that will uh, delay the, um, the enzyme that, that decomposes serotonin in the synapse. So, and whether that's true or not um, is is a question itself, but let's say it is true that, hey, you don't have enough serotonin. Well, if my gut is making the serotonin and I don't address the gut, then I'm missing a giant opportunity to feel better. Mm-hmm. So we know now that um, there's something called inflammation, which is a, a fairly big topic, which a lot of people are suffering with right now and don't even know it. But inflammation now is the precursor for anxiety and depression. Of course. So This becomes really important because actually anxiety has become the number one diagnosed mental illness in the United States, overpowering depression for the first time. But these two things are um, big issues right now in the United States and worldwide. And now we know that food plays a big part in the production of these chemicals that make us feel good. So it becomes vital what we eat. So that's, that's kind of the, the food piece of, mm-hmm. you know, body, mind, soul, spirit. Hey, it's the body. And the number one way we address the body is by the things that we put in our mouths. So yes. if a person has ever drank a, an alcoholic drink or taken a pill, well, you know, in a couple of minutes, you're going to feel much different. Well, even though a lot of food doesn't have a psychoactive component to it, it affects us as quickly and just as profoundly.
1: Yes. Well, when I was speaking with Dr. Parsa, Lisa, Lisa Parsons, um, she was talking about the magnesium deficiency being a huge thing in uh, addiction and recovery. Are you familiar with that component?
2: I I am. And it, it's interesting enough, if, even if we put addiction aside, for whatever reason, many, many people are deficient in magnesium. and. Yeah. And she's you know she's much more qualified than I am to talk about that but um, from my limited understanding, magnesium is responsible for um, a whole multitude of chemical reactions in the body. So mm-hmm. if I don't have magnesium, it's sort of like the, the catalyst for a, a zillion other processes in my body, my body gets out of balance so what do I do? I want to take something you know I want to feel better so. This and this is this is just one aspect of mm-hmm. many imbalances that have to do with our nutritional intake. Yeah.
1: Well, what uh, I know you have a, a fantastic food program out there. I've enjoyed several meals at your table with your your clients there. So, what makes a good food program?
2: Well, I think the first of all, um, a food program. If food isn't a primary thing in, in sort of the management's mind then, and people are kind of paying lip service to it, then it's not, of course, going to be as strong. The thing about food is what we want to do is find the purest food that we can get. So right now a lot of people are keyed into organic food, and that's a great start. And the problem with organic food now compared to 100 years ago when there was no such thing as organic food, it was just all organic then, mm-hmm. um, there's, not as, the, there's not as much minerals in the soil. So the soils are depleted. So right. and probably some listeners that have been around you know, long enough, as you and I have, know that a tomato doesn't taste the same as it tasted <laughs> 30 years ago or 40 years ago. They're, they're, they're bland. They're, and so, but we, want to, we have to have the best quality food. And we grow a lot of our own food. So, hey, there's nothing like taking food out of the ground and putting it on the table. And that not only people get the phytonutrients that begin to decay as soon as food is picked. And by the time two weeks go by and it's now on your grocery shelf, um, the food is more vital, the fresher mm-hmm. that it is. The second thing that does is show people, God, where does this stuff come from? You know, I build a relationship with my food. This is food is something that we can choose every meal to either upregulate or downregulate my whole system, my whole mood. Actually, it's sending signals to my DNA so I can upregulate my genes or downregulate my genes based Mm -hmm. on what I eat. And then beyond that, you know, the meats that we have here, we know where they come from because. Uh, meats that are not organic, meaning they're conventional so if you go to a big grocery store, even a one that might advertise you know whole foods or something i'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that, but <laughs> they have a word they have a word there they say conventional, uh-huh. so it's either organic or conventional, and what conventional means is it's going to have chemicals um, hormones, and antibiotics in it right so be, and it's very important. The cows, for example, eat grass. The cows are not designed to eat corn ever, no. even if, to finish them in corn. So, knowing where your, your food comes from, A, it's very empowering, and B, it's, it, then you know how these animals are treated. Um, because, again, if an animal's all stressed its whole life, it's going to taste and feel differently and actually inform yes. your body differently. Yes. So, think about food as information food is information to your body so the more pristine the information is the more direct uh, the cleaner the translation will be to your body and your body's going to be able to use it easy and then the last thing i think that is important is the people that are preparing your food you know our our chefs are they look at food as medicine and mm-hmm. and so they are they're in their creating they they know that their mood affects how the f- product is going to feel that, that their energy gets absorbed into the food, and that might sound a little you know, out there for <laughs> some people, but um, I can tell you that as we understand electromagnetic, the electromagnetic static in, in the world right now, um, you, know, you, you, you don't put a cell phone next to your head, everybody knows that. Well, um, you know, people's bodies are transmitting this to some degree, and that goes into the food. So every aspect of your food is like a ritual. It's, uh, and then how you eat it becomes really important too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, We are not meant to eat in our cars. Uh, we can't no. digest when we're in a stress place. You know, So food is meant to you sit down and you eat it. And so all of those things, that's, that's a little bit of a thumbnail of what that all feels like. But it's just as important here as any therapy that we offer or what the rooms look like or, or anything. It's a, its a matter of fact, it's, it's our most expensive thing that we do. And I think that it's easy to talk about it, and it's easy to say you have the best food and all this kind of stuff, but it's so expensive that most people can't afford to do it, um, most, most, most centers. That's why hospitals are notorious for horrible food, right? Mm-hmm. The time you need the best food, right? I just had an operation. My body is dying to, for nutrients. I need, a, I need it for it to repair itself. And what do they serve? A bunch of sugar and yeah. you know, pudding or whatever the heck and processed food. Which <clears throat> and my GMOs. body needs. GMOs. So my body yeah. those, those cause inflammation in the body, which is exactly the opposite of what my body needs when I'm trying to, you know, get well. Exactly. Well, um, you've
1: traveled pretty extensively to sacred sites all over sixty countries to study holistic health and mythology, religion, spirituality wisdom traditions, indigenous healing, and wellness practices, and you're a shamanic breathwork facilitator and practitioner. Um, briefly, before we go to break, how does all that fit into what you do at the sanctuary? Well, um, And we can continue you know, after the break.
2: Yeah. All of these people around the world, it's interesting. You know, we in the Western world think we have it all figured out and we're so superior because we have a space shuttle and all this technology. What's interesting is that uh, many cultures around the world have figured out uh, just different ways of looking at things and different ways of doing things than we do. So not that one is better than the other, but actually when we start to consider all of it, again, so that's a holistic view that, hey, they're doing something in a different country that we're not familiar with here for one reason or another. And so it's not that we come and displace, you know, Western medicine. Western medicine is fantastic for trauma and, you know, injuries and all that kind of stuff. But typically when people aren't really feeling good, uh, Western medicine comes up a little bit short there. So it really is just an exposure and then to take these little pieces from all of these traditions around the world and combine them into something that's quite powerful.
1: Yeah, well, I, I know I have needed Western medicine several times in my life. And, you know, uh, it's saved my life a couple of times. And then again, on the other side of that, it's almost taken my life a couple of times. And, and I think uh,
2: many of us, many of us um, have that exact same thing. If you look at, um, if your listeners Google the word iatrogenesis, so that's iatra, i-a-t-r-a-g-n-e-s-i-s, iatrogenesis, and the definition of that is death by medicine, mm. uh, which means which means I have problem A and I die of complication B. So right. a way we can understand that is staff infection. Hey, I go to the hospital to get my appendix out. I develop staph. I think like 35% of staff is in- impervious to antibiotics, so I I die nobody's at fault. There's not some big conspiracy or anything like that. It's an iatrogenic response. And iatrogenesis is the third leading cause of death in the United States. Wow. And they're primarily from um, drug reactions. And so that's often why people start taking uh, a medicine and then there'll be a side effect that I'll have to medicate that and by the time somebody gets up there in age you're kind of expected to be on four, five, six medications. It's not uncommon in our culture for people to have that experience. And that is really saying that hey, my body can't get well on its own. Now, to you know, just the the other side of that is there are a lot of people that need medicine and thank goodness medicine exists and I think that it's important to look at medicine as an intervention and not necessarily lifestyle if you can. And unfortunately, particularly in the kind of the psychiatric world, people will say, you know, you'll be on this the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that might be the case. But for 20 or 25 percent of the population that's now on psych meds, um, I don't know that all of those people need to be medicated because mm-hmm. all medication has a side effect, period, whether it's a sexual side effect or, a, you know, people gain weight or, um, it's any number of things. And again, the side effect might be worth it. It's better than dying. But if I can do it a different way, why not look at that? And I've been saved. Hey, I got my prostate operated on a couple of last year. And I mean, it was fairly quick, easy operation. I mean, it changed my life. Anybody that has that know that, you know, um, this is a uh, like it. And thank goodness, because I, you know, I wasn't able to do that with nutrients. I wasn't able yeah. and I tried.
1: Yeah, I uh, hate to admit this on radio, but I had to have my gallbladder removed about six years ago. But post-op, I asked the the surgeon, what do I need to change in my diet now that I don't have a gallbladder? He said, oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to change anything. And that just never rung true for me. So I, of course, asked, asked my naturopath, and she said, well, of course, you have to change your diet. You know, you've got, this is something that processes the gall." in in your system. So it's okay to ask questions and then get a second opinion even after the surgery is over.
2: Yeah. I think that, that doctors from what I understand, you know, nutrition is not a real focus of medical school training in the, in, in the Western world. And so again, this is, I I, want to be really clear. This is not a criticism of anything it's just that as more information comes out into the world um, it's important that we take it into consideration not as an attack on some other kind of a system mm-hmm. but as as an adjunct to that hey right. uh, changing our diet i think you know one of the one of our mentors here david perlmutter who's a very well known neurologist um, written a lot of books and and the you know this this person has has helped hundreds of kids get off of Riddle in and mm-hmm. um, with food yeah. again for has helped ADHD and ADD and with by change of diet. So now okay, and why why put kids on Adderall if if I can just change their diet and help exactly. them to so
1: let's uh, let's continue this discussion and uh, you can find more information on Dean at the sanctuary at www.sanctuary.net on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Coming up after the break, we'll continue our conversation about um, food and what's on your plate. Coming right back.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent Are you confused about what to eat? What's really in some of the foods you've been eating and how they affect the health of you and your loved ones? Did you know that what people eat can affect addictive behaviors? How did food get to be so confusing, so toxic, and so addictive? When and why did this start? What is safe and where can I find it? Join Karen Van Barneveld and her guests to find answers to many of your important questions on What the Food, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones.
2: Voice America is available on your Google-connected device.
0: Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. You're listening to What the Food. To reach Karen Van Barneveld or her guest on the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to karen at whatthefoodfilm.com. Now, back to the program.
1: Welcome back to WTF What the Food. I'm with Dean Teraborelli, Thanks for founder of the sanctuary at Sedona today talking about holistic approaches to addiction so Dean uh, thanks again for coming on today
2: Uh, yeah you bet Karen thanks
1: you're welcome now you stated that it's not enough to add some holistic components to a treatment program they need to be integrated to work what does that mean
2: well let's um you know the integration part. I think many people <clears throat> that are probably listening to this have gone and had a very powerful experience, whether in a treatment center, in a in a weekend retreat, in a class that they took, uh, in some kind of inspirational workshop, um, in a vacation in nature, or some some experience that they had. They said, "You know, I'm gonna." I'm going to get home and I'm going to do all this and um, you know my life is going to change
1: hmm.
2: of course they get home and uh, in a very short amount of time they're doing exactly what they were doing before this thing ever happened so they they were unable to integrate that experience and when I say integrate make it a part of them mm-hmm. um, and so that's what integration means so when we integrate something in in the recovery world and you know, I think it's important as we're having this dialogue, you know, not everybody has an addiction issue per se, but many, many, many people, I mean, and half the people that come to the sanctuary don't have addiction issues either. They're here for PTSD, anxiety, depression. So, and many, many people are, are suffering with these things and they'll go to a therapist weekly, sometimes for years on end. And nothing really changes so they'll sit with their therapist and they'll come up with a great revelation and they'll say, "Yes, this makes total sense Oh my God it's like like the kind of the lightning bolt hits them and then what happens many times is then people fizzle out and and two days later they're doing the exact opposite of what they agreed to do in their therapy session mm-hmm. so the the integrative part becomes important how do how do we make these things part of us how do we how, how like an embodiment, it is it's it is me. So we have, um, and we've all heard the word tool, right? So we go to a place and we learn some tools. Uh, couples go to uh, couples counseling and they'll learn some communication tools. And again, these are all great. But we also know that in a stress moment, when I go into fight or flight, I kind of go into my sort of lowest survival strategy. And mm-hmm. then all of those tools are out the window, right? And so... Um, and then the more practice, right, so then we practice more. We practice more so they become part of us. So they become they become the default. We're in stress. So when we look at a program that a person would want to attend, and let's face it, anybody that comes to, the, you know, the sanctuary is a month-long program. Typically, people have been to other centers before they get here. You know, we're a, we're a small center in northern Arizona. Uh, some big centers, you know, they spend... Hundred thousand dollars on pay per click every month. You know, we don't do that. Oof. So by the time people come here, they have searched and gone through things, and that you know, one after another, things don't work,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: but so they get here, and the this integrated piece means that um, I've got, you know, I store I store stress in my body, and we've all seen people that are all wadded up and all sure. contracted and um shoulders you know, up by their ears issues. yeah yeah we just we store our issues in our tissues we store our trauma in our tissues so we do body work but just throwing some body work in cuz oftentimes things are going to come up in body work um mm-hmm. so then you know we we have designed a platform where people are going digging down to these root issues and family of origin issues and all these kinds of issues that we've all heard of but then they go around this circuit of they'll they'll do energy work body work then you know they're eating the right kind of foods they see several different kinds of therapists and they're going through this process all the time and these things key off of each other they're not they're not separate that wow this Um, Our psychiatrist knows exactly what's going on with every aspect of the program and can say, hey, you know, from my interview with this client, you know, we do a full psych exam of every single client. Hey, they might need a little bit more of this than that. So take that into consideration when you're scheduling. So our schedulers uh, create a new schedule every single night from the feedback of the system from the Mm -hmm. day. So we have two schedulers for 10 people, right? So it's like a big thing. Yeah. And, um, and what, and that's really about the integrative piece. You know, what do people need in what proportion and when, and that's something we can relate that right back to our diet as well. You know, we don't eat the same thing all day, every day. You know, we, we are traveling, we need to eat different things at different times and different seasons. And so, you know, our bodies are, are meant to be handled in an integrative way. So I don't know really any other center that's doing that in the same way, only because it takes a tremendous amount of of effort. Uh, Myself, as you you know, and eight other people, we live on campus. Mm -hmm. So I don't go home at night. This is a full-time, this is a, a dharma. This is my offering to the world. This is not a job. And to that end, we are sitting here thinking about it every day. Well, how can we make it even more integrative? How can we get better results from, from people's time here and their effort? And, and helping them to break through these things. You know, A lot of people don't really get the correlation, again, since this show is about food, that food really affects them because yeah. they haven't detoxed enough so you know i'm eating pizza every day for a year and then i don't eat it for a week and then i eat it again and then i say well gee i don't feel i mean you've got to detox off of that for a month or two before you yeah. can even decide how you you know as you... and then your brain fog begins to clear because of the gluten mm-hmm. and um potentially the other chemicals that are in there and only then can people begin to feel like wow this really is um important, right? This is really is. So by the time people are here for a month, they understand food and how important their diet is because they're now beginning to experience it, you know, firsthand. And so
1: the fog is I don't know clearing. if I answered
2: your question there, but that, yes if yes, I didn't, you did. You know, rephrase it, I guess. <laughs>
1: no, no. It's that's fantastic. So let's say for instance, I mean this this is an incredibly uh, personal journey that each of your people has while they're there. And it's and it's a very individualized to each client that you have. And that's something that I haven't witnessed um, with other recovery centers. But let's say that I've had a, an addiction for several years. I call the sanctuary and I ask for help. What's the protocol that I go through? And you said it's a 30 day stay, is that the maximum?
2: Now, you know, the most people have ever stayed here is 90 days, and there's only a handful of them. And uh, one of them was trapped, you know, sold from gang to gang and Oof. abused and raped by her father. And oh the gosh. other one was on, you know, I think had 10 diagnoses and on 12 different medications walking in the door and had a- just so many, so many things to work on. And but you know so a month sometimes six weeks maybe two months depending on the severity of the people's underlying traumas and those things, um, the the path of of really the call is um, for our intake people, are we the best place to help them? Mm. So they'll get a little interview about hey what's going on what's what have you tried to do about it what's what are your symptoms what's going on in your dynamic, and really what they're trying to do is figure out, okay, are they going to be the right fit? Because if a person's the right fit, they're no place on the planet like the sanctuary. Um, yeah. Comparing the sanctuary to another treatment center is like comparing a candle to the sun. You know, it's there's no <laughs> comparison. But where people that aren't right, well then, hey, that's a, that's not of service to them and it's we're not being effective. And and so really, it's, it's kind of this process where we just want to make sure we're the right spot because somebody's going to spend a lot of money and a lot of time and Um, bailing is very demeaning when people don't do well you know I've walked in the door to I don't know 10 or 15 centers inpatient and I have to tell you after walking in the door of one or two or three or four or five or six of these places man like it is very demeaning like you you feel pretty bad Mm -hmm. you know walking in the door again and yeah we want to be careful of that right Mm -hmm. and so that's the process. So many centers that you call, um, you know, they've got big call centers and people are trying to do everything under the to get them there. And Mm -hmm. we're like, look, make sure this is what you want. Make sure this is the place. Everything that we do is spelled out on our website, right? So there's no surprises. Here's the people you're working with. We make videos so people can kind of feel the personalities of people. So it's kind of like what you see is what you get. Mm -hmm. And if this is what you're looking for, just be sure about it. And if it is, let's take the next steps and, so it's, it's really because the treatment industry um, has become very predatory. Yes. And by that I mean, um, hey, you know, you've had family members that have struggled, as we all have, and hey, if I have a loved one that's struggling and they're in harm's way and I'm going to try to help them the best I can, and if I get on the phone with somebody that says, you know what, we can help them and get them out of harm's way and you'll sleep like a baby tonight, <laughs> who wouldn't want to hear that? Exactly. Uh, the, unfortunately, um, a lot of what is promised is not delivered, yeah. And that then is why I use the word predatory. So, yeah. And and uh, you know, and I, I don't want to also seem like I have a chip on my shoulder. You know, there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of good work. So, it's just finding them, um, mm-hmm. finding the ones that are living their purpose. And you know, I I look at it this way. Um, I've sat. I know that the genesis of the sanctuary actually came, Karen. Um, and I don't know if I share this story with you, but I'm at my last treatment center I mentioned earlier in the show. And one of the things that happened is I had like a vision of all my counselors. And I mean, between the, my outpatient counselors and the, all the groups I've been in, and you know, over 30 years. Um, I mean, lots of them. And I paid very strict attention. So I remembered them and I saw them kind of like that Charles Dickens goes to Christmas past, like they all just like face after face <laughs> after face. And it occurred to me, you know, these are all well-meaning people. Somebody to get into that line of work. Believe me, they're, they're not doing it for the money.
1: Mm-hmm. They're
2: doing it to be of service. But well-meaning and well are two different things. And by and large, most of them were not well, meaning they're not the, like, they weren't, a, they weren't people that I would want to be like. Mm. Um, yes, I'm not using any more So it occurred to me, wait a second, if I want to help someone to get well, I have to be well. If I want to talk to somebody about holistic health, I have to live a holistic lifestyle. If I want to talk to somebody about getting to their root cause, I got to get to my root cause. You know, I have to be doing all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, And that doesn't, believe it or not, that doesn't exist out there as much as you think that it might.
1: No, it doesn't at all. I know when my granddaughter was going, doing the revolving revolving door uh, addiction thing, uh, it was with traditional treatment centers, and it was just so helpless, such a helpless feeling to watch her go through all of that and wind up not getting help, the help she needed before she passed. So. My next question is um, very controversial. Can a person recover from addiction, anxiety, depression, et cetera?
2: <laughs> well, I don't know that it needs to be as controversial, <laughs> as, but it is. And I can share, I'll, I'll point to two bodies of information, and those are the science of epigenetics and neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So. Neuroplasticity means my brain is changing all the time. Every experience is creating. It's like as I learn and unlearn things, my brain is rewiring itself. And so if a person has a stroke and they can now lose their leg, use of their legs and they go through this painstaking process of learning to walk again, then they do an MRI. They see that same part of the brain is damaged. So some other part of the brain took over. They rewired the brain. Mm Mm-hmm. So, if a person can learn to rewalk after a stroke, can a person, in fact, recover from substance or depression? Um, and so I pose that as a question. If we look at the word epigenetics, that means my DNA is being signaled by the environment. And there are countless cases now of people that have overcome stage four cancer. Mm -hmm. and so that means that, you know, I have a bunch of rogue cells in my body. Stage 4 cancer means, you know, that's kind of the end of the line, and these people went on to outlive their diagnosis by many years, and so that means their body is, their their DNA is signaling something changed in their body, Mm -hmm. so I think the best way I can answer this question is to share a personal story, and, you know, I had a very powerful opiate addiction for many, many years. I You know, I was taking 100 Percocet a day for quite a long time and a bunch of benzos to go to sleep at night. This is not one year. This is many years. And um, so I get out here and I, you know, I'm working on my own healing while the sanctuary's, you know, being created. And a couple of years go by and I have to get an operation on my mouth. And so the guy uses all this anesthetic in there. And when he gets done chopping and cutting and all the things he does, he says to me, by the way, you're going to need something for the pain when all this anesthetic wears off. And I said, you're right. So he gives me a prescription, you know, for oxy ABC, And um, I get it filled and I come back and I go up to my little sleeping loft and, yep, it's true. So my jaw begins to, it's excruciating pain. I start popping these pills. I have itching and the side effects of opiate. I'm not feeling so good. This goes on through the night. And you know, I don't remember even how many pills I took, but in the next day, probably about now. I'm like, you know, I wonder if I can switch to Advil or something. So I do, and that alleviates the pain. And so this bottle of opiates sits on my nightstand for days until it falls into the drawer, as all things do on the nightstand, you know, eventually <laughs> like it falls in there. So, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm searching through there and I come upon this bottle of pills and I'm like, wait a second, no cravings, no, um, mm. I didn't even... I didn't even think about them, which, you know, as as a hardcore opiate addict, you know, just imagine, you know, having a, you know, a couple of grams of dope by your bedside Uh um, and not thinking about it. And I realized in that moment, wait a second, something was different in my body. My body responded to this chemical in a different way. Yeah, Something has changed in my brain. And then I knew that we were on to (laughs) something. So... You know, this whole thing, Karen, and I I share this, you know, a lot of people ask me, okay, so if I'm recovered, does that mean I can use again? (laughs) And, And actually, the people that ask me that the most are the people at conferences that are counselors and stuff.
1: Oh my gosh. So I, my,
2: my response to that is, well, okay, so you have this debilitating problem, and if your definition of, well, is I can go out and do something that's going to take me out of the present moment, you probably need some more recovery, uh-huh. because for me, um, being recovered means I don't have to, I'm not owned by this thing anymore. It right. doesn't define my life. I, I work in, in the addiction, mental health world, and I don't even think about it. It doesn't, I don't ever, under a stress moment, say, God, I wish I could get high. It doesn't even, it's not part of my wiring. <laughs> Now, I will say if I wanted to, I'm going to go, I could bring that all back, but it's not going to happen by going to the dentist, you know, I'd have to say, you know, let's screw it and drive down to a bad neighborhood in Phoenix, where we all know bad neighborhoods (laughs) in every city, you know, that people go to get those kinds of things and just kind of throw it all away over Mm -hmm. some reaction to something. But in that, so that's my definition of recovery, like it doesn't own me. Yeah. You know, being recovered. like, And I don't think about it. It's not part of my definition or my day. And if I can do it, as stubborn as I was and as thick-headed as <laughs> I, I, I was, and as, you know, I mean, I had a $200,000 a year habit for so many years. So this is hardcore. I don't say that to, like, impress people. I just feel like I want to impress upon you. Like, this is a severe problem. Right. And for me, to not be thinking about it, that's, that might want to – you might want to take note of – that Mm -hmm. because, you know, you hear this thing, you'll always be an addict the rest of your life. Um, You know, I brought, I have all my um, clinical files. I saved them over the years, right? So I have two giant bankers boxes. You know, those things when people get fired, they walk out with a Uh cardboard box of files. (laughs) And I have two of those. And if I walked into a a mainstream treatment center, you know, one of the biggies that we all know, and I plunked those two boxes on the, the desk and I said, you know, I'm not an addict. They would look at me and go, Man, you are a sick man because uh, <laughs> you're obviously in denial. But, yeah. you know, this box has been in there for 15 years or whatever. I haven't looked at them in a really long time. And I don't think about it, Karen. So hopefully that answers your question. And I would yes. say the short answer to your question is yes. Yes. I totally, you can recover.
1: Totally, totally agree with that. And speaking of recovery, do you keep in contact with your alumni clients?
2: You know, we do. Um, we have a call that we host every single Saturday, and we have alums from, you know, a month ago and 10 years ago that call in. Uh, we're right outside of Sedona, so a lot of travelers come by, and um, the alums are welcome here. And so, we, you know, they'll often join us for dinner. Um, we do a very powerful um, process on Sunday afternoon that the alums come back. I'm up at the like be, before the crack of dawn, so people know if they want to catch me. If they call me at like five o'clock in the morning, I, there's a good chance I'll be near my desk and pick up the phone. So that's when a lot of the alums that, that just want to talk to me personally will call. I know a lot of the therapists have relationships, you know, just because they'll they'll have formed a bond in treatment, and mm-hmm. and uh, so you know they'll just keep tabs on each other and just check in over the course of time. So we're actually just as much of a community as we are a treatment center and I think that is, um, like the 12 steps, that's the power of the 12 step, the group you know, sure. um, in my opinion, the 12 step community that's the power, um, you know, people get together and they could be talking about anything for an hour and you know, you're, you belong, you're cared about, you've got a common purpose you're on a mission, um, you know, when you're not there for a few days people say hey where's Karen, you know, let, let's call her up, check on her, mm-hmm. so you're part of community something and, and that yeah community and that's that's integral i think in recovery so we make ourselves available to the alums, and that's really helps the people that are here at the same time i agree so, i
1: 100 percent agree and um are you aware of any increase of relapse since covid
2: well in the beginning, people were pretty stressed out and um so what happens typically is when people would have a a relapse. Really, it's about, okay, what's coming up and what is this, what do I need to pay attention to? And so that's a big thing that we deal with in treatment. We have an aftercare component right now as well. And um, so it really becomes, you know, if we, we did find that people were having a little bit more stress and then going and trying to alleviate that stress, the interesting thing is that once people go through this process and start to feel great, they realize that that is not going to be the thing that is ultimately going to be any kind of solution for them. Mm-hmm. So they kind of stopped doing it. <laughs> and and so that's um, that's a factor in, in the whole world right now because COVID is not just COVID, right? You look at all the... People that can't visit their families, and mm-hmm. now we have to wear masks. So I don't get to see all the little subtle clues and cues of of nonverbal communication that has been wired into us yes. and our predecessors. You know, um, I'm not getting that. A lot of businesses are suffering and shutting down, and there'll be people that won't be employed and the debt that people are in. And also so there's a tremendous amount of stress that's not directly related to, Hey, I might get this virus and get sick and be in the right. hospital. So naturally that's taking its toll on mental health and including our, our graduates.
1: Yeah. And hey, when you um, started 16 years ago, what was the initial response from others and the recovery feel about your modalities and holistic approaches? Well,
2: you know i 'm giggling a little bit, Karen because you know sixteen years ago we were laughed at, we were considered like a freak show you know we were I would go to all these <laughs> conferences and I thought to myself, "Wow, people are going to be so happy to hear that there 's something different right and of course, you know they weren 't and I remember um, being at a conference standing in front of my booth and Some guy from a very prestigious treatment center walks up to me, he looks at our banner on the booth, and we're Sedona, and and he looks at me and goes, so what do you guys, sing Kumbaya out there? (laughs) And I just, I looked at this guy and I thought to myself, okay, let me tell him about epigenetics and let me tell him about neuroplasticity and let me tell him about all these things. I'm like, he's not going to understand that or care to understand it, so I just looked at him and I said, yeah, that's what we do. (laughs) But... What's interesting, Karen, is now we fast forward a decade or a half, and now all the things that we're doing, um, I don't know how webmasters do all this stuff, but people that are kind of lifting stuff off our site and some big prestigious treatment centers are taking stuff off our site and and emulating us. So in a lot of ways, you know, what my vision was in starting this whole thing was, you know, this is not about the, the 10 people that are clients at the sanctuary at any moment in time. This is yeah. about sending out a different model into the world and pushing this thing out. So Thank in a lot you. of ways, you know, we were, we were the pioneers of that. If you Googled you. Don 12 Step 15 years ago or a holistic addiction recovery 15 years ago, there was one company that came, like one center, that was the sanctuary. Yeah. Now... Everybody is, even centers that are 12-step advertisers, as non-12-step. I, I don't know why they do that. but um,
1: Well, we're going to have to sign off here. I hate to break in, but you can find more information about our topics of discussion at sanctuary.net, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Sanctuary Sedona, LinkedIn. And you can watch Dean's TED Talk on YouTube. Thank you all for joining us today, and thank you again, Dean. I loved having you on the show.
2: Uh, Thank you so much, Karen, for all you're doing in the world. Really appreciate it, and bye, everybody.
1: Bye.
0: Thank you for joining host Karen Van Barneveld and What the Food. Be sure to tune in for another episode next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.